Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. People who live comfortably look to religion as a source of comfort and stability. They construct their religious worldview as the pharaohs of old built pyramids of stone to maintain a self-serving status quo. Nobody living in comfort wants their situation to change. Nobody wants to answer for their sins. Nobody wants to stand before the terrible and dread judgment seat of Christ. That's why nobody wants to hear what the Gospel of Matthew is saying. But whether you hear it or not, truly, Truly, I say to you, it still applies. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 10 to 13. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 383 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have broken the parable of the ten virgins into three sections. We are now entering into the final section of the parable, verses 10 through 13. Everyone thinks they know what this is about. Everyone has preached about this parable, especially in our tradition, where it is so frequently called upon on a yearly basis. Everyone thinks they get it. Everyone thinks they understand it. But we don't. Everyone talks about this parable and overlooks the basic point that their church is under judgment. Their church is in jeopardy when they hear the parable of the ten virgins. And we have to train ourselves not to fall into the trap of this fake dualism of an imaginary pure church on earth that doesn't exist. The bride that Paul refers to that is washed with the water of the word is the heavenly city in Ephesians. It is the city that comes down from above in the day of judgment. That is the city against which we are all measured. It is not a foregone conclusion that the institution of our church or any other church or the people on this earth gathered in any church institution are going to be fine on that day, or their churches are fine on that day. 
We are all going to be judged. The reason people get stuck on this point is because they think if they can define a bunch of correct human words, then they found and defined the correct thing. But as we will learn very quickly, with one of the callbacks in the third section of this parable, we are not going to be judged by correct words. We are going to be judged by our deeds. And from all the people who have lived, members of your church or not, from the murder of our father Abel until this day, the jury is still out. In my suburb, on my street, within a few houses of where I live, there are sicknesses, there are divorces, there is racism, there are refugees. Just on my street, on my block, in my little neighborhood in Minnesota, flyover country, if I'm at home on Facebook clutching my proverbial pearls, worried about the state of the country today, what good am I? Am I going to then thumbs up or angry face to someone's comment to register my feeling about the state of the world today? No, no, I'm not going to. My feeling about the state of the world today is entirely irrelevant, entirely irrelevant. The only thing is to go and do the most important problems, but we have urgent, important problems that are right at the doorstep. There is no time to tarry. There is no time to worry about the consequences if we are trying to work on these problems. The only consequences we have to worry about is if we don't do something to try to help with these problems. I love that this begins with the sleeping virgins, all 10 of them, all 10 of them sleeping, unattentive, not paying attention, drowsy, not wise, not prudent, not paying attention, all 10 of them. And the only difference among them was how did they prepare? And Father, when you are talking about all the churches and what they're doing, all of the churches are unattentive. All of the churches are doing too little. All of the churches are not ready for the judgment. But some of them did prepare with the oil, and some of them did not prepare with their oil. The shout has not gone out yet that the bridegroom is here. There is still time to get that oil that you need. But if you're not prepared before you drift off to sleep, you will not be ready in the middle of the night when the bridegroom comes and calls for you to come to the feast. And here's the painful part for everyone who thinks they're special. Oil is available to all the churches. The bread and the oil of the gospel. Because we're talking about the daily bread. It's the oil of the mercy of the teaching. We're talking about the instruction of God. We're talking about the teaching. 
It's available everywhere. For heaven's sake, it's available to Barnes and Noble. So Barnes and Noble will be judged on that day. Come on. So what is it that distinguishes one church from another? It's not even having access to the oil that distinguishes one church from another. It's whether or not you carry the oil in your lamp and submit to it and bear it and use it. That is the differentiating factor. Everybody has a Bible sitting in their church, whether it's on the altar, sitting in the pews, on your bookshelf. Everybody has a copy of the Bible. So what distinguishes one from another is whether or not you're using it. Says nothing in the parable of the talents about who has the correct interpretation. It just wants to know who's actually doing what it says. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut, just like the door to Father Paul Tarazi's classroom in Old Testament 101. You better not be late to class. <laughs> that was classic. If you're late, you just have to sit outside and take notes. Tough luck. Come on time. Or don't come at all. This whole passage, beginning with the destruction of the city, is who is ready to go at a moment's notice, at the drop of a hat, at the bolt of lightning, at the call of the bridegroom. Who is ready to go? Who is ready? Who is ready? Who is ready? It's not just having the Bible. It's making use of it. It's reading it. It's getting ready. It's preparing. It's getting that information into your head because the big challenge that the disciples are going to be in is seeing their teacher crucified. If you don't know scripture, you can't tell the difference between Jesus and the other thieves who are up there on crosses. Only by preparing your mind ahead of time only by preparing your heart, as we would say in the ancient world, by replacing your stony heart and allowing God to put in that fleshly heart informed by his teaching on which the heart is etched, God's very words, then are you going to be able to see Jesus, the crucified one, as the son of the God of the heavens. That's the only way. So that's the preparation that he's expecting. Now, unfortunately for the disciples, they've had 20-odd chapters to prepare. If they're still struggling when they see the beautiful city, I can see how Jesus would be concerned for the disciples' sake because they won't understand. This is their last chance to get ready. This is their last chance to prepare themselves. This is the last chance for them to gather the oil they're going to need when the bridegroom arrives. It's hard to explain the magnitude of the tragedy because a wedding feast in the Middle East is not the same as a wedding celebration here. It's true 
people waste a ton of money on weddings in the United States because they try to fill the void of the absence of community and the absence of meaning and the absence of the poetry of liturgy, which many traditions have. Many ancient traditions on the earth have this depth of meaning in the literature of their religious customs that's missing in the United States. So in the absence of all of that, they buy a bigger cake and they spend more money on lighting and makeup and clothing. And it doesn't work. And people end up divorced and miserable. I mean, we all know the story in this country. But in older cultures, certainly the tribal cultures of late antiquity, in which the Bible was received, a wedding feast was a communal activity. The entire community, the entire tribe, the entire society was a part of this activity because everyone understood that when two people came together to join themselves to each other, they weren't making a commitment to each other. They were making a commitment to everyone to support the whole family, the whole community of people, so that there could be life, so that people could take care of each other, and so that the entire tribe and the broader society could thrive. That's the function of marriage. So it was a big party. It was a celebration of everybody. So to be left out is a big deal. It's not a small thing. It's not like an American party where you didn't want to go anyways because it's a hassle. You'd rather go home and watch Netflix. To miss the party in this culture, in this setting, at this time in history, is to miss out on everything. So to run away for five minutes because you have to buy some oil and to come back and to find out that the bridegroom came and went and now you're shut out of the party? It's the end. You're cut off. You've been rejected. You've not been rejected from a party. You have been rejected from communion with your people. And on some level, I know it's impossible for Westerners to understand this because we don't enjoy communion with each other, not really. Because as we've talked many times, Richard, we live in a state of alienation with each other because of the way modern life works. We have some small experiences of communion here and there, but we don't have the beauty of community that even people in the United States may have experienced 100 years ago. It's gone. And that's why people are sad. So just take a moment to realize what's at stake here, just in the parable and how much impact it would have had to those hearing it. Nobody wants to miss the wedding feast. When you think of a small community at this time, they were not just a community like we think of people, like coming together with common ideas or ideals or whatever. They were interdependent. Their lives literally depended on each other. They needed each other for survival. I remember Father Paul used to talk about that when the punishment in the Old Testament was to be cut off this was equivalent of a death sentence if you were cut off from the community because on the one hand if you didn't have your community 
you didn't have the means for survival. And on the other hand, you couldn't just rent a U-Haul and go move someplace else and go just join up with another community because they didn't know you. And if you couldn't pull your weight, you were actually going to be a burden on them. And these societies were living on the edge of survival anyway. So being cut off from a community is not just something that's sad. You know, people who get deplatformed from Facebook get really upset about that. And it's not their survival. It's just their desire to express their feelings. And you see how upset people get. This is a much more difficult feeling because it is really part of one's survival. I mean, a wedding feast is something that the whole community turned out to. That's when the best food was served. That's when people took off work from everything else they were doing and really spent time with each other to commune with each other. I love that you use that word, Father, to commune with each other. I have a friend who in college was vegan, and he would talk about how meat is not something we need to be eating all the time as human beings. And the example he used was his father, who grew up in a village in Cyprus, and he said they would eat meat once a month And before they would eat it, they would parade it through the village, the lamb or whatever they killed before they would eat it as a community. It was a community event. It was the community event. If you were going to have a community event, you had meat and you would parade it through the village. That was part of the celebration. You didn't create a float out of flowers. You had a lamb on a spit that you would parade through the village because this was part of the celebration. That's why we shouldn't look lightly at killing the fatted calf when we hear these parables in Scripture. So this was such a big event for everyone to be cut off is something that is painful. And what's even sad, Father, I wonder if so much of the pain we see in our own society is the fact that we never have that kind of communion. People can literally live their entire lives in Minnesota where they have never been part of a community like they're describing here in Scripture. No church has the kind of community that we find here. Maybe some, maybe some, maybe I'm exaggerating on that, but it is so rare when it was the norm in the ancient world. And so imagining the rage and the anger that we see among people in our society really is from being cut off. The door is shut. I joke with my daughter because I walk through the neighborhood and people have these big signs that say welcome in front of their front door. And I joke and I'm like, yeah, I'm not welcome. I'm not welcome. I'm not welcome. And what happens if I go and knock on their door and say, well, you just had the sign out. (laughs) I don't think that would work. Every door is shut. These people are sad because one door is shut. But Every door is shut in my neighborhood, and this is maybe not every neighborhood, but for many people in the United States, this is the life that they live, and this is the experience we have, and we can see how our children and our people are neurotic and sad and angry because they don't have that community that they need in order to feel whole. The churches aren't enough. They're definitely not enough because a church community in a different kind of society was at the center of town, but it wasn't the town. In a town or a village or any kind of community where there is community, 
the homeless man or woman, the mentally ill person, the person who has severe psychological problems or undergoing economic strife or whatever. People have traumas, difficulties. People become difficult or dangerous to deal with because of their problems. Those people are part of the community in a healthier society. And when they're part of the community, you have to deal with them. And the community then organizes to take care of them and to nurture them. So the nurturing mechanisms that we now apply to people who don't need to be nurtured are misdirected. That's part of the dysfunction of American society. We have all these nurturing mechanisms that have developed over the centuries, and we apply them to people who are over-nurtured, and we ignore the people who are experiencing real trauma, very often invisible to us within our own country, or ignored by us in other countries, or on the borders of our own country. The kids in cages definitely deserve ample nurturing. People in war-torn countries deserve all of the nurturing and gentle words that we make fun of the younger generation for pampering themselves with. It's about functionality. That's how community works, but because we're so bifurcated and self-involved, it doesn't work. And then we ask why there are school shootings? We're fools. We're self-deluded. We are self-deluded. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. I love this phraseology. It's classic Mathean phraseology. And it's syntax. It's not just the word Kyrie. You know, the vocative Kyrie in Greek. It's the syntax Kyrie, Kyrie. It's a technical phrase, and it harkens back to Matthew chapter 7, and it must be said. And it's a condemnation against all those who are proud of themselves for formulating the correct theological statement. Not everyone who says to me, Kyrie, Kyrie, will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Are you kidding me? What I love also about this phrase, Richard, is that it slams the person who obsesses over having the correct theological formulation, and it obsesses over the fundamentalist who gets all worked up in a knot about their love for Jesus and says, Lord, 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 Lord. No, no, you're both wrong. Because you're both focused on something other than what Jesus wants. He's not a cheap date. You can't impress him with cheap talk. He wants action. He wants you to take care of the children at the border. He wants you to take care of the wounds of your brother Lazarus. He wants you to be at least as kind as the dogs that are licking the wounds of Lazarus, at a minimum.
that's a nice twist on that metaphor. We all catch that the dogs represent the Gentile dogs who are better than us. But it also means that the animals are better than the humans. Because at least the animals are concerned about our brother Lazarus. It's about deeds. It's about actions. We will be judged by what we do. And you do not need a seminary degree to know when your brother is in need of nurturing and care. Come on, people. As I say all the time to the church school kids at St. Elizabeth, it's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. Sometimes, actually, it's because we go too quickly or try to be too smart. And I've said many times, Father, I love doing Bible study on the Bible's Literature podcast because it forces me to go slow. All ten virgins were sleeping. The other interesting thing is that all ten virgins actually came to the feast. The foolish virgins got their oil. They went to the feast. They did everything that the wise virgins did, actually. The only difference is that the foolish virgins delayed. They were late. It's like the story of the ants and the grasshopper. As soon as the grasshopper was done fiddling and was ready to prepare for the winter, it was winter and he hadn't prepared anything. The ants had all been preparing the entire time. This is the flip side. Well, how come the wise virgins weren't nicer with their oil? Why would you be a foolish virgin and not get oil and make it so that the wise virgins also were late to the feast? You know, you had all this time to prepare yourself and you want to prepare now when there's no more time and you're going to make someone else do it for you? Come on. You took the class. You failed the class. And then five years later, you find out that you need that material. So you call up the professor and say, hey, can you just remind me of what you were talking about in the class? No, you were in the class and you decided not to study. Why would you waste the professor's time? He gave you the time. Actually, you bought the time with the professor and you squandered it. And now you're going to ask the professor for free time on the side? Why would you do that? And is the professor not being wise or not being Christian or not being kind or not being merciful by not giving it to you? I don't know. Maybe he needs that time to take care of a sick child. And you're going to waste it on yourself? But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. I do not know you. Very straightforward teaching. He doesn't recognize you because you don't act like someone he recognizes. It's straightforward, friends. He's not being passive-aggressive like a Minnesotan. <laughs> He's not pretending he doesn't know you. He's looking at the way you walk and the way you conduct your affairs, and he's saying, you're not a member of my tribe. People in my tribe don't act this way. It's as simple as that. If you were a member of my tribe, a member of my wedding party, if you were one of my guests, you would act a certain way. Remember the wedding garment earlier in Matthew. If someone is in my Roman household, they wear my toga. If someone was put on my knee, and is my son, or was put on my father's knee, 
I'm the bridegroom. My father is hosting a party. If you were my brother and you sat on his knee, not only would you wear the toga of my father's household and wear the signet ring bearing his name, but you would conduct yourself as a member of this household. But you act like somebody else. I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. I can't let you in. Simple as that. It's as straightforward and matter of fact as the five churches, you know, the five virgins, who said, look, you guys haven't been doing Bible study. I can't whip out Machen and teach you Greek in two minutes. Just go to the store and pick up a copy and start cramming. I don't know when the exam is coming. The professor said it might be this week. Matter of fact, I can't download my brain to yours. You have to go do the work. And Jesus is saying, it's just a matter of fact. I don't recognize you. And since at the end of the day, it's not Jesus's party. It's his dad's party. This is what you always have to remember. It's like what I said in the epilogue when we were talking about how the land doesn't belong to the Palestinians or the Israelis or the Americans or the Russians or the British. None of this belongs to anybody. It belongs to God. And we have to learn that and start living as brothers and sisters. We have to learn it. We don't own anything. Jesus Christ doesn't own anything. It's not his party. It's not his feast. Everything belongs to his father. So he has no power over the situation. He can only defer to what his dad wants. This is such an important mechanism because this is what makes it possible for us to love one another. It's the disempowerment. It removes our agency. It's the thing that results in the execution of Jesus. Because he doesn't want to be executed, but what he wants is irrelevant because he has to listen to what his dad wants. This is what we have to get through our very stubborn human brains. This is what it means. Our colleague, Father Charles Baz, you know, was talking about the importance of conviction. Ultimately, this is about our conviction with respect to the gospel. How could Jesus say anything but, I don't know you? Because either he's serious about the Torah or he's not. If Jesus would say, oh, it's okay, come on in, then he's not Jesus because he's not serious. If he would have said, it's no big deal, come in, it would have voided the Gospel of Matthew because then he's saying, my father is no big deal. None of this matters. It's the lack of conviction that is angering American kids. It's the lack of conviction that produces the self-delusion that is ignoring the brokenness that causes suffering, and it is why your kids are committing acts of violence. Believe me when I tell you, 
The children in this country would rather have adults who conduct themselves like Jesus and know when to stand up and say, with all due respect, I don't recognize you. You're not welcome. Father, you and I have been thinking so much about this and just like the actual violence that's happening in the world. And we make such a big point of making sure that we start with Scripture as our reference, not what's going on in the world. That is not our reference. Scripture is our reference. So when we see parents and families delaying in passing along the oil of mercy and the bread of life to their children, it's painful because we're seeing this through this scripture. When you aren't teaching your kids mercy from the earliest age, what are you producing? You're not producing anything. The world and the media and those who want to buy their attention and make money from their attention are going to make something out of them. They're going to make out of them a tool for making money. So if you're not giving them the word of life, if you're not giving them the oil of mercy, if you're not about getting the oil ahead of time and being prepared and ready to go at a moment's notice, you're handing your children over to Satan But I'm just going to say it in plainer terms to the world, to commercialism, to unscrupulous money makers, to social media, to ad purveyors, to pornographers, to video game creators, that you're just handing them over to them so that they can be another set of eyes that they can pay for and then resell and make money off of. So it's time now, today, to teach your children and teach those around you. Don't force it on people. People don't want the oil. They don't have to take it. But those who have empty lamps, who are wondering how to be prepared, you can help prepare them now through this word. It's time to demand conviction of our children. It's time to challenge them with the pain of being shut out, to make them understand what it means through judgment so that they would learn to seek out and to care for those who are on the outside. It's time to make them know what it feels like not to be welcome and to hold them to a higher standard. It's time to challenge them. It's time to tell them to their face, you need to pursue knowledge, not so that you can get a great job and be able to publish a title on LinkedIn. No, that's not why. You need to pursue knowledge because there are people who are hungry There are people who are homeless. There are people who live in war-torn countries. And at a bare minimum, you need to honor them by doing something with what you've been given. At a bare minimum. Beyond that, if it's possible, you need to do something to improve their situation. Whether you can do so directly, whether you can do so through teaching, whether you can raise children who can help to improve their situation, you need to either decide to be part of the solution or you are part of the problem. Life is not a vacation. Life definitely must not be about the pursuit of happiness. Life is about duty and service. If you are serious about Jesus Christ, Be on the alert then, for you do not know 
the day, nor the hour. This is the pressure of the teaching of the Apostle Paul about the immediacy of the kingdom. We spoke about this a few episodes ago. The reality is death is around the corner for everybody, one way or another, and the literature of Scripture, of the scriptural genre, uses this and scripturalizes it and puts this pressure on us. It tries to remind us of how finite, how temporary life is. I was thinking about this again in terms of the crisis in the Middle East. You have a bunch of people fighting over a piece of real estate. They imagine, each side imagines they have a legacy. They imagine they have a claim. But from the perspective of Scripture, man's days are as grass. Like a flower of the field, so doth he flourish. And the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And the place thereof knows it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon those that fear him. And his righteousness is from eternity to eternity upon those who keep his commandments to do them. Pretty straightforward teaching, Dr. Benton. At the end of the day, everybody's squabbling over the field. This is what Father Paul taught us in the rise of Scripture and in Land and Covenant. Everybody squabbling over the land is a fool. Who has ever seen or heard of a lily in the field in the Gospel of Matthew fighting with a blade of grass over the earth? It doesn't make sense. Who has ever seen a sheep squabbling with a goat over a patch of mud? That is how Scripture views human conflict. We will be gone and God will remain, and the land will remain, and there will be another flock of sheep. This is how we have to start thinking. This is how we have to orient ourselves. And that's why we have to be alert. We have to be vigilant. We have to start seeing things through God's eyes and conducting ourselves this way, because if we get stuck in a human perspective, you can't get unstuck when the bridegroom shows up. It's too late. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.